0: It's so good to be here with you this morning to uh, worship God with you. Uh, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors. It is my privilege to open up the Word of God with you this morning. Uh, Matthew chapter 27 is where we're at. If you have a Bible or work your way on your smartphone or otherwise to Matthew chapter 27. Uh, we have been working our, this whole year uh, through the Gospel of Matthew in the King and the Kingdom series. And this is the second to last message. Next week will be the last message in the series. But uh, Matthew chapter 27, uh, I think, is the most important news the universe has ever had, and so uh, I just want to press in on that today as you're working there. In 2013, my family and I moved from Okinawa, Japan, where we were ministering to uh, American military there, to uh, Czech Republic. And the reason we wanted to do that is because we wanted to be a part of a church planning uh, movement in uh, some of the least reached peoples on the planet. And when we would tell friends and family and supporters that, sometimes they'd look at us funny like, what do you mean least reached? Like, you're going to Europe. Like, didn't the gospel come from Europe to America and all these things? And I said, well... that's debatable in terms of the history. There's some certain Christian uh, um, cultural baggage from the past, but they would say stuff like, well, I've been to Prague. If you've ever been to the Czech Republic, that's the only place you've been to. Uh, but I didn't live there. Uh, but they've been like, I've seen that. It's beautiful. I've, I've been to the cathedral. Like, why are you going there to plant Churches. And uh, what well, we explained to them, uh, honestly, if you were just to do a survey, and many surveys have been done, uh, the, if, to ask checks what they believe, they, they are usually ranked number one, two, or three as, as the most atheist people in the world. Um, behind maybe uh, Sweden and uh, Japan. And those three kind of move around in, the, in that, that way. And so um, they're like, well, that's interesting. And, and as we moved there, we found something else interesting. On the one hand, Jesus was everywhere and nowhere at the same time. What I mean by that is there were, there were beautiful cathedrals in every town. There, there, there's at the center of the, every square, there's a, a, a Jesus on the cross, a crucifix. In fact, you could just be walking down random streets and, and look up and see Jesus on the cross. And and so on the one hand, like it was there, but when you begin to talk to the people, uh, I I really realized for the first time just kind of the the spiritual blindness that can be in a whole people group. I I remember teaching an English class, and and they, they were pretty good at English, so it wasn't a matter of language, but as I got to the point of just explaining grace, that was a totally foreign concept that they could not wrap their minds around. And when I began to ask them, well, well, what about Jesus on the cross? Like, he's all over the place here. And they're like, oh, yeah, whatever. We don't, we, that's from our past. And they would think of Jesus kind of like we might think of uh, the ancient Greek or Roman gods and goddesses. Like, yeah, at one time, some foolish people worshiped those things. They're idiots. No, there's no way with that we would do that today. And if you if you're you're saying that that guy that's all over the cross uh, uh, in our country has anything to do with my life today, you're a fool. But really, that reaction, the the foolishness of the cross, is not a unique reaction among Czech people. Czech people, this has been for two thousand years. In fact, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, who uh, they, they they struggled with this idea of how do we maintain our Well, for for lack of a better term, How, how do we be cool in the culture and still follow Jesus? How can we be cool? And so Paul just came out and said this, hey, the cross of Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is foolishness to the Gentiles and a stumbling block to the Jews said, look, just, do, just start there. It is foolish when you tell Greek people that, that who worship powerful gods like Zeus, and you tell them, actually, there is one God, and he came and took on flesh. He, physical, they only worship the spiritual. He took on flesh, and then he died on a cross, a cruel Roman torture instrument. When they heard that, they said, that's foolish. We don't want anything to do with that. Our gods are powerful and strong. And then for the Jews, we say, uh, actually the Messiah came and he was God's son. He put on flesh and he died on a cross. And they're like, no way. Anyone who dies on the cross, the Bible tells us, Deuteronomy chapter 21 tells us that they are cursed of God. There's no way God would curse his son. And so it's foolishness for the Greeks and stumbling block for the Jews, but this would continue on and and does continue on throughout history. You know, the earliest depiction we have of Jesus on the cross is a mockery of Jesus on the cross. Did you know that? This was found about 75 years ago. Show that first one. Okay, so what you're looking at here, this was found in the Palatine Hill in Rome. And what it was is actually they discovered a boys' school. So this is a graffiti, of think of like a 12, 14, 15-year-old boy. And uh, go to the next slide. So just to clear what you're seeing here, it says, Alex worships his God. And so we've got a, a 12-year-old boy drawing of, of apparently Alex, who was maybe one of the classmates that was a Christian. He's raising his hand in worship to uh, someone on the cross. But notice that's Jesus on the cross, but notice what's, what else is about that. He's got the head of a donkey. And he's literally saying, Alex worships a jackass of a god. This would be the the mindset behind that. This is now entitled, I think, Alex Emanos Blasphemous. (laughs) It is the blasphemous depiction. But that was from the second century. And this would continue on. You can take that down. This would continue on throughout history, right? Like this idea that, that, that Jesus w- would die on a cross. This is foolishness, right? So in uh, when Islam came around, they, they uh, revered Jesus as a prophet, and God would never have his holy prophet uh, die on a cross. And so they have different traditions. But some traditions in Islam say that Judas was made to look like Jesus, and he died on the cross. Because there's no way Jesus would die on the cross. You continue to go on. Uh, Richard Dawkins, a new atheist, would say uh, the cross. That's like divine. Uh, that's like uh, divine child abuse. There's no way I can accept that. Gandhi put it this way. He says in his autobiography, 1894, he says I can accept Jesus as a martyr. His death on the cross was certainly a good example. Which I just stop and say, of what? How <laughs> is that a good example? But nevertheless, he says, it was certainly a good example, but that there was anything else to his suffering, this my heart can never accept. Can never accept. Again, this would continue just that the cross is an offense, the Bible will say. So so even in our, in our day, in our, in our city, the vast majority of our neighbors, by survey at the last census, uh, shows that they have no religious affiliation whatsoever. I think it was like 60, mid-60% of your neighbors, no religious. But, but the thing is that if you ask them about Jesus, most of them would, one, know about him, at least as a historical figure. Two, most of them would even know that he died on a cross, but here's what your neighbors and your friends, your coworkers don't know. They don't know why. They, they don't know the why behind that. They, they see it again, like we would see it uh, with Zeus and Aphrodite, and like yeah, someone worshipped at one time. But they're fools. They're fools. And so this passage is going to, I want us just to press into the why. Why does it matter? Not just in general, why does the cross matter? But for you specifically, why does the cross, why is the cross the most important thing in your life? Or should be? Why is it the, the most important news? Regardless of what, what's going on in the world politically, or with vaccines, or no vaccines, or, or with your mask, or any of those things, none of that matters compared to what we're going to look at here today in the cross. And so we're going to press into that. You know, one of the reasons why even the most skeptical historian uh, believes that Jesus actually died on the cross is because... Because the story has him dying on a cross. Most of the other religious founders of the world, they die uh, kind of at the pinnacle. They die when, when things are going well. So so uh, Muhammad, when he dies, he's surrounded by his wives. When, when Buddha dies, he, he his last words are "Strive without ceasing." We're going to look today that Jesus' last words are almost the opposite. He's basically saying, "I did the striving." He dies in shame. He dies naked. He dies in the most horrific, shameful way possible. But as we look at the cross, the other thing, as we start to say, well, what does this have to do with me? The, The first thing we see is that it outs all of us. Like, none of you are good enough. Not a future version of yourself. And not, 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 I'll, I'll get my act to, together and someday I'll be accepted to God. Uh, we like to uh, pretend that God maybe will judge on a curve. And so, so we look at, and we're like, well, I didn't murder. I didn't do that. We basically compare ourselves to morons. And we're like, well, I'm not a moron, so I must get into heaven. The cross says, no, you are a moron. And you are, you don't deserve heaven. You, you won't get in on yourself. There's not a future version of yourself that'll be acceptable to God. God in and of yourself. So it outs us all. It outs us all. And and so as we press into what is the cross and how important it is, I I want us to look today at at three words that theologians use, but the the, the words aren't so important as the concept behind them. And and, and as we walk through this passage, you're going to see substitution. What what is substitution or, or specifically penal substitutionary atonement? We'll look at propitiation. And then finally, we'll look at Reconciliation, how those three things work. So Matthew chapter twenty seven is where we'll be at here this morning. Matthew chapter twenty seven. If you were with us last week, as Jesus was betrayed with a kiss, it rested in the garden, that's when we stopped. So just by way of recap, since it is Christmas God left his throne in glory, put on flesh, was born to a penniless mother and father, uh, stepfather, a virgin mother. He lived a life that you and I could never live, a life of perfect obedience to the Father. He he gathered some disciples and taught them what the kingdom of heaven was about. He wanted them to reorient their lives and, and their values, their priorities, their worship around the kingdom. But now he came for the moment that he came for and he was betrayed with a kiss, arrested and dragged away to a mockery of a trial in the middle of the night by the religious leaders who accused him of blasphemy and sentenced him to death and beat him and then handed him over to the Roman authorities to Pontius Pilate. The Apostle's Creed simply says he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and buried, but a lot more happened in that time. Pilate wanted nothing to do with him, wanted to let him go, uh, but eventually, with his no spine, gave in to the demands of the religious leaders and the crowds that were crying for his crucifixion. He handed Jesus over to be beaten and flogged, where in flogging they would take a, a, a leather whip embedded with pieces of bone and metal and basically fillet his back open to the bone, which was often a death sentence in itself. Twenty Roman soldiers would get their licks in and their kicks in and their spits in, and then they would dress him up in a purple robe and put a crown of thorns on him, and they they bowed down to him in mock worship. The one who spoke the universe into existence, stood before, before them, and they worshipped him, but they didn't worship him. They mocked him, and that's where we pick it up in verse thirty one. It says and they mocked him. They stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. Now, every word matters, but 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 this I want to just look at a moment. There is this guy, Simon of Cyrene. He's coming in probably just to worship in Jerusalem. And he's coming in from the fields. And as he goes down the road, he he finds himself at the wrong place at the wrong time. And he sees a a man that is condemned, a criminal, carrying his own cross and stumbling under its weight. And he's just kind of in shock of the horror of the scene. And, And all of a sudden, the Roman soldiers turn their swords on him. And they say, you carry his cross. Imagine he tried to put up a little bit of resistance. He didn't want to be part of that kind of shame or associated with that. But nevertheless, he, he is forced to carry the cross. But, but notice Matthew names him. His name is Simon. And names in the first centuries kind of serve as footnotes. Basically saying, hey, if you don't believe in the story, go ask Simon. This means he was probably known to the church. Mark tells us that he had two sons. One named Alexander and one named Rufus. Well, we get to the book of Rome, the book of Romans. Paul writes to the church at Rome, and he says, "Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who is a mother to me." What what I think has happened is that that Simon isn't in the wrong place at the right time. In the providence and sovereignty of God, something transforms him in this moment. He who has to carry Jesus' cross, we begin to see the first hint of substitution. I believe at some point along the line, whether he carries the cross and he watches Jesus go up on that cross, or maybe 50 days later at Pentecost, when Peter stands up and connects the dots of what that cross meant, something happened in Simon's heart and his family's life, and everything was transformed in that moment. I believe Simon realized what I hope we see in this first point here is that that cross that Jesus was on was his cross. That's why I've entitled this sermon, The King on Our Cross. That's what substitution is. That was our cross. When, when we look at the cross, the first thing we should see is, that's what I deserve. That that was my cross. And yet Jesus, the Holy One, went to the cross. And so Simon gets to partake in this most important event. Verse 33, And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Again, just as another act of mockery or cruelty or maybe, maybe a, a hint of mercy. We're not, we're not told, but, but as Jesus beaten and weary and losing blood, dehydrated and hungry, they offer him a, a, a refreshment. And when he tastes it, it's not refreshing at all. It's bitter. So rather than uh, quench his thirst, it actually makes him more thirsty. And he says, I don't want anything to do with that. But more than that, it says it's mixed with gall. Maybe there was an act of mercy here by the soldiers and they said, you're going to need this. This is going to dull the pain. This is going to dull your senses. And Jesus in this moment says, no, I'm going for the full weight of what's about to happen to me. When he goes to the cross for you and for me, he did not dull his senses. He took it all. And so he rejects the gall and the wine. Verse 35, and when they had crucified him, They divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. They divided his garments. It's a a hint of Psalm 22, which will become predominant in this passage even further. But Psalm 22 is a a prophecy of what's going to happen to the Messiah when he dies and pays the sin for you and for me. But but notice what, what Matthew says. And when they had crucified him... In fact, the gospel writers, when they talk about the crucifixion, they don't talk about what we would talk about. Their movies are not like our movies. What we focus on, whether you're watching The Passion of the Christ or any other uh, crucifixion scene, what we focus on on is the physical agony of what Christ endured. And, And it was great, no doubt about it. I mean, they all knew uh, as a first-century Roman citizen, they had seen with their eyes, and heard with their ears, and smelled with their nose the horrors of the cross. And so, maybe the gospel writers and the rest of the New Testament don't feel the need to elaborate because everyone was very well aware of what was going on there. But but the gospel writers focus on something else, something much more important. They focus on, they don't want us to withdraw in horror of of what Jesus went through physically, but withdraw in horror of the sin that you committed to put him there in the first place. So they focus on why he's there in the first place and just say he was crucified. They divided his garments. They sat down and kept watch over him. And over his head, they put a charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Again, they meant to mock him, but they were actually telling the truth. This is Jesus, your king. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple, rebuild it. And in three days, save yourselves. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. There's three groups of people that are going to continue the mocking. One commentary put it this way. There's going to be ignorant sinners. These are just groups that just want to come out and mock Jesus. They're mocking insult upon insult on Him. Next is religious sinners. Verse 41. So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked Him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save Himself. He is the King of Israel. Let Him come down from the cross, and we will believe in Him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And so so the religious leaders are mocking Jesus on the cross, the ones that should have known better. And then finally, you have condemned sinners mocking Jesus on the cross. Verse 44, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. I mean, this is dark. I mean, how... How, how dark is your heart if, if you are literally being uh, put to death on a cross and you, with your l- little bit of energy that you have, look over and you keep on insult upon insult on the one who is dying in your place for your sin. Now Luke tells us that something happens with one of these. So, so somehow, some way, by the grace and mercy of God alone, one of these criminals, one of these murderers, one of these robbers, their eye is open through the process of the next three hours. And they see Jesus for who he actually is. And Jesus says, you're going to be welcomed into paradise this day. But, but what we see here, first of all, is this doctrine of Substitution. Substitution. Substitution is uh, Christ suffered and died the death we deserve. That was our cross. And so this is throughout the Bible. This has uh, been pointing to Jesus the whole time. But just a few passages. Isaiah 53 a couple of verses from there. It says, But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Do you see the irony there? He is wounded, we are healed. He is holy, we're unrighteous. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus is our substitute. He is, the cross is our cross. And he is going to it willingly, uh, in, in some sense even joyfully, to bear the weight of the judgment of God that you and I deserved. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And then a verse that I share almost every week and will continue to do so because it's so important that we wrap our lives around 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. It is the great exchange. His righteousness gets credited to our account. Our unrighteousness gets put on Him on the cross. It is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. But let's look on to the doctrine of propitiation. We'll pick it up in verse, uh, where was I? 45. It says from the now from the sixth hour, that's noon. So sunrise is zero. The sixth hour is noon. There was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. So darkness, a supernatural darkness, descends over all the land. Now, now someone said, well, maybe it was, a, maybe it was a, an eclipse. Well, the eclipses only happen for a few minutes if they do happen, not for three hours. And, and secondly, this is Passover. Passover is always done at a full moon. There are no eclipses when there is a full moon. So it's not an eclipse. Others have said, well, maybe it was a a sandstorm. You know, in that part of the world, sometimes these massive sandstorms can blot out the sun. And maybe that's why the darkness came. Well, the problem is, again, it's at Passover, the rainy season. There are no sandstorms at this time of year. This is a supernatural darkness. Throughout the Bible, darkness is associated with the judgment of God against sin. And so uh, in in Egypt, the penultimate plague was to darken the sun uh, for the Egyptians who worshiped the sun. But but Jesus even talks about this. When he describes hell, the place where God's divine wrath is poured out against rebellious sinners, he describes it as a place of outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what's happening here? He is receiving the judgment of God against sin. He is bearing the weight of that. Amos prophesies this. Listen to the exact words Amos says. Amos 8, 9, on the the day of judgment, he says this. And on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. That is happening now, Jesus is bearing the wrath of God, of sinful men against God. One commentary wrote this this week. I wrote it down. It says, we who are finite and sinners do not understand and cannot even begin to understand how evil appears to a holy God. We, we think far too little of, our, of evil. But Jesus did not. And so for three hours in a mystery that we will never really understand. I don't think we'll even understand it in eternity because we'll still be finding We'll understand it better and we'll praise him for it, but we will never understand what Jesus was going through spiritually in this moment. But the Bible tells us he was the propitiation for our sin. He, Christ paid our sin. This is Christ paying the debt of your sin and mine. Every thoughtless word, every thought that you've had, every action that you've rebelled against God in sin, Jesus is now paying that price. The entire sacrificial system has been pointing to this moment. None more so than in the Old Testament, Leviticus 16, the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur, one day a year, one day a year, the, the high priest would, would, would get to go into the very presence of God and offer a sacrifice one day a year. But before he did that, he first would have to slit the throat of a bull and get covered in its blood for his sins and the sins of his whole family. And when he made, when he made sacrifice for his sin, then he could take two goats And he would gather all the people of Israel and the goats would come before him and he would lay his hands on the goats and he would confess all of the sins of the people of God for the year. And this would take hours. He would confess the adultery of the people. He would confess their lust and their pride, their idolatry. He would confess their greed. He would confess every wicked thought and every wicked deed that the people had committed. And he would uh, symbolically place those sins on the heads of those goats. And one of those goats would have its neck slit and that blood would then be used to be sprinkled on the inner sanctum in the Holy of Holies. And the other goat... They would take outside the camp and send out into the wilderness. It would be the scapegoat to take the sin of the people outside the camp. And Jesus is both. The book of Hebrews tells us Jesus is both. He is, the, he is the goat whose neck is slit to pay for and shed his blood, and he's the goat who takes the sin outside our camp. It's propitiation. So, 1 John two two, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus is dying our death in our place, paying our price. He is our propitiation. Martin Luther put it this way. Our most merciful Father, seeing us to be oppressed and overwhelmed by the curse of the law so that we could never be delivered by it from our own power, sent His only Son into the world and laid on Him all the sins of all men, saying, You be Peter, that denier, Paul, that persecutor, blasphemer, and cruel oppressor, David, that adulterer. That sinner who ate the apple in paradise. That thief who hung upon the cross. And briefly, you be the person who has committed the sins of all men. See therefore that you pay and satisfy for them all. And Jesus was paying and satisfying for them all in the darkness of those three hours. Verse 46, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, With a loud voice, it really should be translated with a screech or a scream of agony. He screamed out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, now, why did Matthew all of a sudden give us some Aramaic here? He hasn't done that before. That's because Jesus would have cried out in Aramaic, and, and they were eyewitnesses, and that screech, that scream from the cross would stick with them forever. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And again, on the one hand, Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why are you forsaking me? And Psalm 22, this week I would encourage you to read it, it's such an exact depiction of what Jesus is going under that uh, that skeptics and doubters of Christianity for years said Psalm 22 cannot be original. It's too accurate. It had to be placed there by Christians. Except for in 1940s, 1950s, when they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls and they found Psalm 22 dating hundreds of years before Jesus' life. And they're like, oh, I guess you guys didn't put it there. It's there. But Jesus is not just saying that to quote Psalm 22, to point our attention there. He's saying it because he means it. And and notice what he says. He doesn't say, my hands, my hands. He, He doesn't say, my disciples, my disciples, why are you forsaking me? He doesn't say, my people, my nation my nation, why are you forsaking me? Jesus doesn't even say, my creation, my creation, why are you forsaking me? He says, my God, my God. It's it's language of covenant language says, you're my God. And even in this moment where the wrath of God for your sin and mine is being poured out, He's paying the penalty that you and I deserve. Even in this moment of receiving unimaginable suffering, He's showing a heart of trust. My God. My God. Why are you forsaking me? And we know the answer. To pay for our sin, the propitiation of our sin. So we see... Substitution we see propitiation, pick it up in verse fifty, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice again he screams out and yields up his spirit we 'll come back to that. Now we begin to see reconciliation. The payment has been paid verse fifty one and behold the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. the curtain was the what was the the barrier between sinful man and a holy God where only the high priest could go once a year. Now that's torn in two and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Literally, Christ's death was a earth-shaking event, a universe-shaking event. The tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many... Honestly, I don't even know what to do with that verse. Like, it, so Resurrection Sunday wasn't just Jesus. Apparently, this was so uh, universe shaking that as as the earthquake hit and the, the the tombs opened up on the third day, others rose from the dead and they went into the city. So, so I don't know who went in, but some of the, the those that have trusted in the Sovereign Lord for for. Centuries past, come out of the tomb. Reconciliation is beginning to happen. Look at verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him. Now keep in mind who this centurion is and who's with them. They're part of the Romans. He just had a hand in the murder and the torture of Jesus. When when they see what happens, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and, and what took place, they were filled with awe could also be translated, they were filled with terror and fear of God and said, truly, this was the Son of God. At the death of Jesus, the the doorway was opened back to the the kingdom of God for all the nations. And, And Matthew points out, look who's the first one in. The guy who just murdered Jesus is the first one into the kingdom. He comes into the kingdom by the grace and mercy of God alone, and he confesses Jesus as the Son of God. He does what the, the religious leaders could not do in verse 43. and said, uh, if he desires him, for he said, I am the Son of God. Now the centurion says, he is the Son of God. Reconciliation happens. Reconciliation. Christ's death has opened the door to the kingdom and the family of God. Romans 5.10, another verse I quote all the time. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Colossians 1, 19-22. For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of His cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Jesus' death provides our reconciliation. Jesus' death prov- makes a way for us to be sons and daughters of the King. So, what do we do with this? How do we apply this to our lives? Well, the first one, I think, is the hint in verse 50. It says, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Well, actually, John tells us what he said. And you probably know it if you've been around church for a while. He said, Tetelestai. It gets translated, it is finished. Or it is paid. Tetelestai would be stamped by a Roman official on your, doc, your tax documents when you're all paid up, paid in full. Jesus, now having borne the sin of the world, at the very last moment, he gives up his life and he says, it's paid in full. So this is good news for you and me. It isn't that Jesus just provided a possibility for salvation. If you've trusted in him by grace through faith, your sin, past, present, and future. So what you're going to say to your spouse today and how you're going to act this week and what you're going to think this week, in Christ, it is paid in full. So you can rest in that. That's, that's the first thing we do if you're a follower of Christ. Secondly, if you're not, this is an invitation. This is the most important invitation you've ever had to trust in Christ that I believe, as foolish as it may sound, that his death on the cross purchased my freedom forever and ever. I don't have to earn it. I didn't deserve it. It is a gift of God received by grace through faith. So that's the first thing we do. The second thing is, as we ponder the cross, you realize this. On this side of eternity, we all suffer. And sometimes our suffering seems as meaningless as maybe the disciples felt about Jesus' suffering on the cross. The cross doesn't tell us why you suffer, it doesn't give you full meaning, but it tells you why, it tells you what it's not. Because of the cross, you know that you aren't suffering because because God uh, doesn't love you. The cross proves that God loves you. Because of the cross, it tells you that uh, you haven't been abandoned by God. Jesus was abandoned by the Father so that you could never be abandoned. The cross tells us that God has a good plan for our lives. And even in our suffering, he has a plan. And so it gives us something to do for our suffering. But the other thing that the cross does is it it gives us purpose and meaning in life. It is the most important purpose. So as a church, what should we do with this? Again, our neighbors, our friends, most of them know what behind the cross? They don't know the why. We are stewards of the why. We have this privilege to go and take the why to the nations and to our neighbors and say, here, let me explain to you the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus and why it's the most important news you could ever hear. It is the most important news. So to get to that point, I think all of us, in 21st century American culture with our social media and otherwise, I, I think there's this pressure. Just like the Corinthians had, there's this pressure to be like, hey, we want to make Jesus look cool. Stop it. The cross is not cool. He died naked, bleeding out. It wasn't cool. You can't make that cool. If you try to make Christianity cool, it's not Christianity any longer. He didn't die to make us cool. Cool. He died to make us sons and daughters of the King of kings and Lord of lords. So let's stop trying to be cool. Let's just embrace the uncoolness of the cross and say, hey, I know this is going to sound crazy, but I got to tell you, Christ died for you. And by grace through faith, you can become a son or daughter of the King. So let's be good stewards of that message. Let's not belittle the cross by trying to make Jesus cool. He never belittled us. He went to the cross for us. Let's pray. So, Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your blood that has paid it all. Thank you that in our place you died. You substituted. You, you paid the price. You, you were our propitiation, and you are our reconciliation, and you have, been, you have entrusted us with the message of reconciliation now. So, Lord, let us go out as glad ambassadors of this foolish message that can change eternity for people. Lord, I pray even this week in this room that you would give each of us a person or a people that we might have, just begin to have those conversations with to point them to Jesus and the hope that comes through the cross. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.